Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Permit me a personal anecdote. I promise I won't make a habit of it. So before I got into radio, I figured I was going to be a classical trumpeter. I studied music at a university close to where I grew up. And one year, I entered a concerto competition with a friend of mine, Glenn. He was a fellow trumpeter. And we played the Vivaldi Concerto for Two Trumpets. So in the trumpet world, the general practice is to play pieces that were written in the Baroque era, like this one, on piccolo trumpet. A very cute, small, little trumpet that sounds really high and is completely evil and impossible to play. When you're first learning the piccolo trumpet, like I was, it takes all your concentration just to keep the notes from cracking. No room for doubt, no room for anxiety, you let either of them creep in for one second and your stamina can vanish instantly, along with any hope that you ever had of making a pleasant sound. So, we'd practice this piece, again and again, separately and together, with a pianist and without, and honest to God, we had our shit together. We sounded good. And each time we practiced, Glenn turned the pages. We would share one music stand between us, and since he always stood to my left, he did the page turns. It's just what made sense. We didn't really think about it. But just before the competition, we figured, you know, maybe it would look a little more professional if we each had our own music stand. So we'd be left to our own devices as far as the page turns were concerned, and I'd never done the page turns before, but surely it's the simplest possible thing and the least of my worries. The musicological term for this is bad planning. <laughs> competition day. We walked on stage to a smattering of applause from the couple dozen fellow students in the audience. It was a small audience, but one that consisted almost entirely of people who were better musicians than me. We started strong. Good intonation, focused tone, matching articulations. Then I saw the page turn coming. Here's another thing about the piccolo trumpet. You need to have both hands on it at all times. So, the only time you can turn a page is during a rest, a point in the music when you're not playing. I realized in that moment, on stage, that there were no rests left on the first page. I was hurtling at the pace of 110 beats per minute towards a page turn that was not going to happen. And you think I could remember how the second page started? No, I could not. I don't want to say panic set in immediately. Actually, the opposite happened. The world suddenly seemed to be spinning in half time. I thought through my options. 
I could try and hold my trumpet with one hand for just a second while I turned the page, but what if I dropped it? What do you do if you are a nominally semi-professional trumpeter who drops their trumpet in the middle of a concerto? Just walk off stage? Leave the theater and pray for death? No! No, 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 no. I couldn't risk it. I guess I could walk over to Glenn's music stand, I thought, and peek over his shoulder like a creep. He had his pages laid out rationally. He was an old hand at this, after all. But what if I freaked him out? I could feel myself already beginning to lose my cool, and the longer I could hide my distress from Glenn, the longer he could keep playing with full confidence. And I told you how important that is. By this time, we were rapidly approaching the end of the page. I needed to do something, and I needed to do it now. What I did was panic. What I did next was improvise. The freestyle Vivaldi that came out of my horn finally alerted Glenn to the fact that something had gone horribly wrong, and he, at last, joined me in my death spiral. It's hard to tell the story beyond that point. That concerto competition, from page two onwards of the Vivaldi double, is the only musical performance during which I have completely blacked out. And that includes concerts where I was in the audience, by the way. My friends and colleagues who were listening told me that by the time we got to the third of three movements in this concerto, we were pretty much both just making chicken noises. I have no recollection of any of this. Look, I am aware of the humor in this story. In fact, we were laughing about it almost immediately. But it was a sort of defensive, desperate laughter. Because the truth is, I was really embarrassed. And I think I have a better sense of where that embarrassment came from now than I did back then. It's an experience that anybody could understand. It's embarrassing to screw up in front of your colleagues. It's embarrassing to fail publicly at something you're supposed to be good at. That's true for everybody. But I honestly think that classical music is a uniquely perfect discipline for fostering that kind of embarrassment. It sets up the perfect conditions to promote shame. And I know a piece of music that might help bring that into focus. It's by the composer Tom Johnson, and it's called Failing, a very difficult piece for string bass. In Failing, I am required to read a long text while playing music written above the text. The text must be read out loud at a more or less normal pace, and I must not allow the music to slow me down. This is the bassist Chichi Nwanoku performing Failing on BBC television in 1993. Later on, there is more music and the task becomes more difficult. So difficult, in fact, that I will probably not be able to do it without either slowing down my reading speed or else making mistakes in the music. At least the composer feels confident that I will eventually begin to run into trouble, which is why he called the piece Failing. I heard a classmate of mine perform this piece back in music school. Pretty fantastically, I thought. But exactly what constitutes a good performance of Failing is complicated. Any bassist who's performed it would tell you that. 
because it's written into the piece. In a way, I almost want to fail because everybody fails at certain times and in certain ways anyway. And because that is what the piece is about and because I want to interpret it appropriately. But of course, I must not try to fail. I must try to succeed in doing the task well without slowing down and without missing notes. Even though by now it is almost impossible to succeed for very long. If I tried to fail and then failed, that would be a kind of success and not a failure at all. So I must try to succeed. That way, when I fail to succeed, I will succeed in communicating the essence of the piece, even though I will fail to accomplish the task as it is set up. I'm reminded of a quote. It's by the composer Cornelius Cardew. You may have heard it back in Ghost Echoes Number 1, but it bears repeating. He said, Everyone is failing. Our entire experience is this side of perfection. Failure exists in relation to goals. Nature has no goals, and so can't fail. Humans have goals, and so they have to fail. Often, the wonderful configurations produced by failure reveal the pettiness of the goals. Part of the reason Johnson's failing is so good and so entertaining is that it subverts our expectation that a classical music performance should be, at baseline, a correct reading of the notes in the composer's score. I'm not sure I realized this back when I was studying classical music, but it's a really strange learning process compared with every other kind of music. Lots of great musicians have figured out how it all works by just fooling around with a guitar or with GarageBand on an iPad. You can learn music by playing. And I mean that in the childlike sense, unfettered exploration and discovery. An instrument or any other piece of musical technology is really just a device to impose some structure on what would otherwise be freeform play. In this kind of music making, your goal is really more or less just to see what happens basically like Cornelius Cardew advocated in that quote about failure. But for students of classical music, there are plenty of externally imposed goals. Most obviously, your goal is to faithfully interpret the composer's score. But it gets more granular than that. In my education, I was always encouraged to listen to recordings of great trumpet players and try to emulate their tone. I always had the sense that there was a platonic ideal of a trumpet sound that we were all meant to strive towards. Think about how much of a contrast that makes with jazz, where a player like Miles Davis is beloved specifically because he sounds so different from everybody else. I hasten to add, I'm not saying that all classical musicians sound the same. The best ones are unmistakable for anybody else. That's what makes them the best. I'm thinking of people like the pianist Glenn Gould. Or the violinist Patricia Kopachinskaya. or the soprano, Barbara Hannigan. 
These musicians aren't the best of the best because they came the closest to some universal ideal of musicality. They're the best for the opposite reason, because they conform to their own ideals instead. In that sense, they're the classical musicians who have the most in common with rock musicians and rappers and folk singers. Glenn Gould may be rolling in his grave to hear me say that, but I mean it as a compliment. The point is, the goal that young classical musicians are taught to strive for, that grand ideal, it doesn't help anybody. It sure didn't help me, not that I was ever going to be a great classical trumpeter anyway. It really only caused anxiety, which certainly played a role in whatever happened to me at that concerto competition. This is why I love failing, that is, the piece called failing. It's the most self-aware expression of the impossible and thankless task that classical musicians set out for themselves. Even if you succeed in reaching that impossible ideal, that one true and perfect sound, aren't you sacrificing yourself needlessly? Aren't you robbing your audience of a connection with a distinct musical personality? Aren't you missing the point? In 1970, a new orchestra assembled on stage to perform some of the most revered classics of the European canon. The Portsmouth Sinfonia was an unconventional group, to say the least. They exemplified the outsider approach to classical music more than anybody, more than Glenn Gould, even. But they differed from Gould in one important respect. They were terrible. Portsmouth Sinfonia was a group of people playing instruments they didn't know how to play. They billed themselves as indisputably the worst orchestra in the world. Some of them were professional musicians, cellists moonlighting on the oboe and so forth. Some of them were entirely clueless, but all of them were told that they must try their very hardest and come to all the rehearsals. This recording of also Sprach Zarathustra by Strauss has had a new life in recent years. It went viral on YouTube under the title Orchestra Fail. And it is, by any reasonable standard, a failed performance. But my God, what a failure! It is a catastrophe so complete that it has brought joy into the hearts of over three million people on the internet. Often, the wonderful configurations produced by failure reveal the pettiness of the goals. 
This is one of those occasions. The Portsmouth Sinfonia was a novelty. They are primarily remembered for their comedic value, but personally, I hear an uncanny beauty in the sound they made. Speaking as somebody who once blacked out on stage, in the middle of the Vivaldi double, from page-turn-induced anxiety, it's therapeutic somehow to hear an orchestra play the great works of the Western canon like they don't give a damn. This is Ghost Echoes, a history of music with secret rules. I'm Matthew Parsons. Next time on Ghost Echoes, not an air force, but an air circus. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the show, you should head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. And if you want to talk to me about the show, come hang out on Twitter. I'm at MJR Parsons. While I'm breaking kayfabe here, I just want to say a quick thank you to the folks at Consequence Podcast Network for bringing me on board. I was working on this show for a really long time before I managed to find a home for it, so I'm super grateful that I've landed here. Okay, that's about it. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Consequence Podcast Network.